I'm so excited about this series and this message because I do believe that in the chaos of our world and uh, perhaps even the chaos of our own lives, how many of you have had those moments where you're like, life is just too busy and I need to take a minute to breathe? Anybody or is it just me? We really need to lean into what God has for us when it comes to sacred rhythms, to understand a pace in which we can actually thrive and win when it comes to our spiritual growth and maturity and know Christ more in a world that is going full stop, a world that is shouting at us, we can actually hear God's voice and create a rhythm to win in life. And so I hope you've enjoyed the series so far. And, and as we jump into the conversation today, my prayer is that we would actually hear the Spirit of God speak to us wherever we are in our journey of faith that this wouldn't just be hearing a message, this would be actually hearing from our Savior. That we wouldn't just talk about Jesus, but we would have an experience with his presence that marks us, that leaves us different than we came in. For those of you watching online, that leaves us a bit different than when before we started listening and watching. So why don't we pray for that very thing and then jump into the word uh, today. Father, we thank you. Oh, we thank you that you're here. We thank you that you love us, that you see us, that you know what we need. And God, perhaps one of the miracles that takes place every time we gather is you take one message and you speak to every single one of our hearts, even though we are all at different places and we have different things going on in our lives. You know how to speak directly to our hearts and our minds, and I pray that you do that this morning, and I pray, Father, that you'd meet us in this space and that truly we would be transformed, our minds would be renewed by your word, that we would walk in new levels of freedom and truth because your word is truth and your spirit brings freedom. And so we welcome you in this place and we say have your way in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Recently, I got to interview a woman who lives here in New York City. Her name is Lauren Cadillac. What a cool name, by the way. I'm like, never change your name when you have like Cadillac as your last name. Very impressive. Lauren Cadillac, and she is a dietitian here in the city. She specializes in helping her clients maximize uh, health through nutrition. And uh, she goes by the brand Feel Good Dietitian, the Feel Good Dietitian. Now, right away, that got my attention because I don't always associate things like dieting and exercise and eating right and making healthy choices with feel good. You know, those aren't the things that make you feel good. Uh, and so when I asked her a little bit more about that name and what it meant, the first words that came out of her mouth were, diets don't work. And now when she said those words, what I heard was, eat as much bread as you'd like. Now I know that's not what she said, but that is what I heard. And so immediately I was like, yes, I agree. Please tell me more, you know? And she explained to me that she helps people really understand what makes them feel good and to maximize eating those foods, to which I asked, you know, so um, what if donuts uh, make you feel good? I'm asking for a friend, not me. And uh, she clarified, she meant, what makes your body feel good? Oh, okay. And uh, within a couple seconds, it was almost like just this reaction, and it was quite sheepish even the way I asked it, but I couldn't help but ask, okay, but how do I know what makes my body feel good? And she goes, ah, that's the issue. She said, so often what we're dealing with is that we're going so fast and so hard, it's so busy and so full, people are tired, they're stressed, they're exhausted, that they don't even realize what is happening in their body. They can't even understand or discern the cues that their body is giving them. And so they continue to give themselves things that crave the, the appetite or the hunger they're feeling, but don't actually have much nutritional value. And it's only until they reach a real critical moment 
moment in their health, when there's a very real pain point that they're feeling, that they're willing to slow down so that they can start to understand what they actually need. And I went, whoa, so true. And as I walked away from that conversation, I thought, you know what? I don't think this just applies this principle to nutritional health. In fact, where I've seen it at work more and more in my life has come to relational health. Because if I could be honest with you, there have been plenty of times in my life where I have been so busy. I have been so distracted. I have been so full of life, doing the things that I'm supposed to be doing, that I have not even been able to discern my real relational need. And instead of actually taking time to cultivate what it looks like to have the full breadth of community at work in my life and participate in it, I simply crave uh, certain things. And so I fill the appetite with things that seem like relational connectedness, but are void of any relational nutritional value. For example, at the end of the day, I will scroll on my Instagram and I will leave comments and I will like and even direct message a few people instead of actually meeting with somebody face to face and being able to answer the question, how are you really doing? Or at work, I, I will go ahead and continue to have pretty shallow conversations, nice ones, but pretty shallow, instead of having the real conversation that might have some conflict, but it's healthy conflict that's going to lead to greater strength on the team and effectiveness. Or when somebody texts me, hey girl, how you doing? Instead of just texting back with a really cool meme, I actually pick up the phone and call them so they can hear my voice and know, oh, we need to really connect. I don't think I'm alone. I think a lot of us do this. I think this is one of the problematic and pain points of our culture and society today is even though we have access to each other like never before, we are lacking real relational connection. And yet, we were made for relationships. We were designed to thrive within community, not separate from it. It doesn't matter how busy our season is. It doesn't matter what our past experiences have been with relationships, good, bad, ugly, everything in between. It doesn't even matter what we convince ourselves that we really need. The truth is that we were created and designed to be relational beings that find fulfillment within relationship, within relationship with God and whether or not we like to admit it, relationship with each other. Recently, I've been reading the Gospel of John, and I, I've been really struck by this Gospel in so many ways. There's so many things that are unique about the narrative of Jesus' life as told through the Gospel account of John. One thing that is really fascinating to me in John is that John is the only gospel account where we witness, we get to uh, get an inside look at Jesus' prayer for his disciples and for us. This is amazing. Nowhere else. Yes, there is the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, but he's teaching us how to pray. This is the only time that Jesus is actually, it's recorded, we get to have insight into Jesus' prayer to the Father for you and me. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever asked the question in your life, God, what is my, or what is your will for my life? Anybody ever asked that question? I'm pretty sure, right? I think it's like the million dollar question in like church Christianity life. God, what is the plan for, for, for my life? What do you want me to do? What is your will? Well, then I think we can learn something from a prayer that Jesus prayed for you and me. Like, I'm pretty sure that'll give us some insight into what God's will is for our lives. 
And what's fascinating to me in this prayer in John 17, we're going to read a portion in just a second, is there's so many different things that Jesus could pray for you and me about, right? I'll just be real. Like, there's a lot of things. Jesus, pray for it. You know, fix it, Jesus, right, in our lives, you know. But he doesn't pray for the promotion. He doesn't pray for the bigger paycheck. He doesn't pray for the spouse. He doesn't pray for a lot of the things that we pray for quite often and honestly that we should pray for. I don't know about you, but pause for a second. I'm so grateful that I actually serve a God who hears me when I pray. That it's not just going through the motions and wishing for the best, but he hears. That he's quick to respond. That he cares. I'm so grateful that the word is filled with promise about what God does when we bring our prayers and requests to him. That we're supposed to cast our cares on him because he's a good father. No, he's more than a good father. He's our perfect heavenly father. And he will richly provide for us as we turn to him. I am so grateful that I can bring everything to him. And yet, even though those things are really valuable... And God cares about what we care about, the details of our lives. This is not included in his prayer for us. But there is one theme that is very reoccurring in Jesus' prayer for us. You know what it is? Our relational need. It's like as if Jesus knew, yeah, those things, yeah, they, they matter in the moment. But for the long haul of your life, what you need are healthy relationships. What you need is community that only I could form in your life. Listen to Jesus' prayer here in John 17, 20 through 23. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. And he's speaking about the disciples here. So he's praying for us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. What does Jesus pray for? He prays for our relationships. He prays that we would be one, that we would walk in complete unity. This is far more than just, I pray that church attendance goes well over the decades. That's <laughs> so much more than that. I pray that the programs go well in church. I pray people show up to the events. I pray that when I host a community group, people sign up. Way more here. One. That means there's no longer us and them. No longer people who vote this way and people who vote this way. <laughs> people who come from this background and people who come from this background. And people who grew up in this denomination and people who don't think denominations should even exist. I mean, crossing all the barriers. One. And we see that the early church actually took this to heart because the early apostles, they actually taught this. So much of the New Testament beyond the Gospels is how we actually live this out in our faith. We see in Galatians, they had this revelation and the apostle Paul says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith for all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female for you are all what one in Christ Jesus. Joni Erexon Tata says this, believers are never told to become one. We already are one and we're expected to act like it. What a revelation. Like Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead and in that moment, every person who believes in Christ, now we're one. 
It's not like, oh, I hope someday we figure this out. We are one. The challenge is, will we act as one? The early church, so much of their time and their conversation and the friction that they had to work through was learning to live as one. There's so much instruction in the Bible about how we can do this. In Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, we see some instruction on how we can just live as we are one. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, often this verse or these couple verses, they kind of become the message of like, this is why church attendance matters. Show up on Sunday because it says, don't give up meeting together. But that's like the baseline here of what is being spoken and the instruction that's given. That's like the number one thing. Yeah, show up. But more than that, spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Don't give up on each other. Encourage one another. And I I want you to pick up on this. There's an urgency to this. And all the more as the day is approaching. Like this isn't something we can be casual about. This is not the kind of thing that we do when we have time. When the job lets up. When the kids start sleeping through the night. When I feel better about my season and comfortable to share with people how things are going on. No, no, there's an urgency here. Perhaps one of the greatest expressions we've ever seen of this lived by the church happened during the early church. In the book of Acts, we see a group of people who knew that they were one in Christ. And they made a decision to devote themselves, not just to Christ, but to one another. In Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, we see what could happen when the church decides to act as we are. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. That's when you know the love is real, right? Like, can we just, you know, something's going on. Somebody's like, oh, I'm really struggling to pay rent. You're like, oh, I'm going to pray for you, you know? But the first thing that we probably don't do is like, I'm going to take up an offering for you, right? Like, that's next level, okay? But this is the kind of devotion that they had to each other. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. You break bread with people you like or people you're trying to like, you know? (laughs) That's a sign of friendship. That's something you do with family. We don't invite people in our homes that we call strangers or even acquaintances. We're on a journey of wanting to know each other more if we're willing to do this. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, I think sometimes we, uh, we tend to romanticize scripture, you know? Especially, like, I, I remember early on in my faith, I used to be like, oh, I just wish I could just spend a day with Jesus. Like, travel in time and just be one of the disciples hanging out for a day. Then I would really know, you know? Right? But if you read the gospel accounts, that was messy. Like, they were fighting a lot. They were arguing with each other, disciples. They weren't making the best decisions. Jesus was, like, encouraging them. He's also saying, like, get behind me, Satan. Like, there's a full experience there that sometimes we forget when we romanticize certain parts of Scripture. These are real people. In Acts chapter 2, these were real people. These were people with jobs. 
These were people with bills to pay. These were people with different opinions. These were people with different experiences and different backgrounds and different trauma points. These were people in different seasons of life. These were people who were living in a culture and climate that was absolutely anti-Christ. Sound familiar? And yet they made this choice, which gives me hope. It's possible again. And I also see something really amazing happening because they chose to act as one, because they prized and treasured togetherness and unity. Spiritual maturity took place, needs were met, and the gospel was spread. Now, let's take a quick poll in here, just for fun. Those of you online, please participate, though I cannot see you. Uh, How many here would say, you know what, in some area of my life, I would love to become more like Christ and continue to spiritually mature? Anybody? Raise your hands. Okay, Sunday school answer. Awesome. You all get gold stars. I like it. Okay. How many of you have a need right now in your life, in some area of your life, that you would just love somehow, one way or another, to be met? Anybody? Some of you are like, like with that one, right? I get it. Okay. Who here has... Someone in your world right now that you love and you really, oh, you so want them. You desire so greatly for them to really know who Jesus is and place their faith in Jesus because you know what Jesus has done for your life and you love him so much you want that for them as well. Anybody in this room? Okay. Well, then this message, this conversation just became urgent for every single one of us. Because those kind of miracles and that kind of fruit is the byproduct of living as we are, living as one. So what does that look like for every single one of us right now in the real world and with our lives that are busy and full and our differences, which are very real? How do we cultivate unity today? Well, we could have a conversation about the things that we should be doing or the things that we can keep doing, and I think there's value to that. But I think there's equal value to having a conversation about perhaps the subtle, the subtle things that might be sabotaging our ability to live as one. Uh, recently, probably actually a few months ago now, uh, friends of ours moved into a new apartment here in the city. And it was an apartment with a lot more space for them. They were expecting. And so it was a place where they could be with their family. And when they moved in, my friend, she just went into full, like, nesting mode. Like, they got new furniture. They're, like, always working on projects. And it it was was just so fun to see them in a space that, like, we're taking roots here. We're going to be here for a while. We're so excited. How many know when you move into a bigger apartment in New York City, it's like, Jesus, you have proven yourself faithful. You know what I mean? And, uh, and so they moved into this space, uh, and she bought a plant for the apartment in the living room. And she called this her grown-up plant because it was one that cost more than $30 and went, you know, on the floor and took up a whole, like, the whole corner of the living room instead of on the windowsill. And uh, she was so proud of this plant because she's not much of a plant lady. She hasn't had a great history with keeping plants alive, but she was, she was devoted to this plant. And so she paid very close attention to the instructions needed to keep this plant alive and flourishing. And she followed those instructions to a T. She put it in the right spot. She made sure it had enough sunlight. She was watering it the right amount of time. And honestly, when you'd come over to her place, even though she had completely new furniture in her living room, the first thing that she'd say is, check out my plant. Like, she loved the plant. There was something about this plant, you know? And uh, a, a few weeks into taking care of this plant, 
all of a sudden the plant took a really rapid turn for the worse. It, all of a sudden, it just started drooping the leaves, turning brown. It was just so sad. And she couldn't figure out what was going on. You know, she was following all the instructions. And she even started to water it more. That made it worse. She was so frustrated. And one day when she's watering this plant that is dying in front of her, she just, it's so quick. It was so subtle. She just saw, like, something move on the plant. And she was like, what is it? She started searching the rest of the plant, and she couldn't find anything else, but she was convinced. She knew Bugs are sabotaging my plant. They have infiltrated our home and they are attacking and killing this prized possession of mine. So she calls up her husband. Her husband is an engineer and he works a lot with uh, landscape companies. And she's like, I need you to reach out to one of your landscaping pros and they need to come and look at this plant because this is, this is serious. And he's like, I'm not having one of my colleagues come to the house to look at the plant. She's like, I'm pregnant, okay? So you're gonna do whatever I say, which is a real thing. You know, I think I've noticed that dynamic. I'm like. I'm giving birth to your children, so you're going to do this. And so he brought over somebody. They looked at the plant, and sure enough, bugs, so little that you couldn't even see them with the naked eye unless you were really looking for them, were sabotaging the health of this plant. And as soon as she was able to start treating the plant accordingly within a week, that plant was thriving once again. And I believe that in life, when it comes to the things that affect our health individually and as a community. We need to be on the lookout for those subtle things that are so probably so subtle that we might not even see them, but could be sabotaging the growth and the health and the fruit of what we could be experiencing as Christ-centered community. So let's take a look at just a few of these bugs, these subtle things here with the time left we have this morning. First bug, pride. Some of you are like, I didn't sign up for this. You know, pride, you know. Like, oh, we're going to go there. Yes, our own pride. Our own pride can sabotage the full fruit and benefit and effectiveness of Christ-centered community in our lives. Pride is, it's, it's subtle and it's destructive because when pride is at play in our hearts towards each other, well, it, it really stops reconciliation. It stops understanding it stops connectedness, because you can't really hold on to pride and listen at the same time. At least not listen well. <laughs> you can't hold on to pride and reconcile at the same time. Like, you can't hold on to pride and grow all that much at the same time. Pride is really interesting because it, it, it tends to sell us the lie that we know better or that we don't need you. I know better and I don't need you. And if you really dissect both of those things, at the heart of those statements is a whole lot of fear that hasn't been dealt with. Because most of the time, if we're really honest, we have this approach towards others that says, I know better. Because at some point in our life, we've experienced the criticism and judgment of other people in a way that has left us guarded. And so we don't want to hear the criticism. We don't want people to know what we really don't know. And so we're just going to put on the front, I know better. Or I don't need you. Oh, fear is most of the time the biggest culprit. Because we do that because at some point we thought we needed somebody and they didn't treat us well. And when you've been burned a few times relationally, then you're going to start to put that wall up. I don't need you. When things get tough, I don't need you anyway. I'm good. Me and Jesus, we've got this. <laughs> I don't need you. 
We start to say these kind of things. We start to think this kind of way. And yet we see that we're called as believers to something radically different. Listen to what the word of God says in Ephesians chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Wow, that sounds like a strong statement. I want to live worthy. Like, yes, tell me more. Let's do this. Be completely humble. Oh, and gentle. Oh, and patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One. We're called to one. We're called to humility. Pride starts young, doesn't it? Like, it's hard to really, really put this into practice because for the majority of our lives, pride has been at play. Like, I, I remember one of my earliest memories. I wasn't even four years old yet. And I was in the kitchen. My older sister is in the kitchen. And my mom was ironing my dad's clothes for work the next day. And she had to use the bathroom. And so she said to us, I'm going to use the bathroom. Don't touch the iron. It's hot. Now, my sister, and can we just have a moment to be grateful for the oldest siblings? Because they kept the young ones alive. My sister many times kept me in check uh, and still does. And uh, she's the rule keeper. So she heard this and went, yes, of course. I'm going to make sure to not touch this. Why would I ever touch this? She keeps coloring. But when I heard my mom say, the iron is hot, the first question I had was, I wonder how hot it is. You know? And so instead of trusting my mom, the grown woman who has lived a lot longer than me, who has no ill intention towards me, she's my mother, she actually wants to protect me, pride, as a three-year-old, took over. I know better. So I climbed to new heights to get to that iron. And I didn't just put my finger on it. I put my whole hand on that iron. Yeah, pride cost me big time. I got burned. How many of you ever been burned by pride? Oh, that's real, right? You know? Come on. You, like, you look back and go, man, why didn't I just listen? What, what was I thinking? You know, you meet that person and you're like, oh, they're the one. They're the one. Jesus has brought this person into my life. And all the people around you are like, hey, we see some red flags. We see some warning signs. And you're like, no, no, no. Because I see the potential in this person. Like, I'm looking at them through Jesus' eyes, okay? Like, I see. And then two months later, you're like, ooh, what was I thinking, you know? Madly in love to what was I thinking in the course of less than a less than the time it takes to change from summer clothes into fall like that's how quickly right because pride because of pride pride is also uh one of those things that can come on very quickly have you noticed that too the other day i was i was walking and i was walking to work and i had my headphones in and i was listening to worship music and I just had a good morning. I'd read my Bible. I'd prayed over some things. I'm listening. I'm like, yes, Jesus, have your way. Like, this is going to be a great day. And all of a sudden, I'm at a crosswalk. And so I'm waiting. So I pull out my phone, and I start looking at Instagram. And I see that I have a direct message. And I go, oh, how fun. I wonder who wants to talk to me. So I look at it. And it is a, a really nasty message from somebody that I don't know 
it was a troll, right? That's just really what it was. It was like a troll account. Uh, it took me a while to, to figure that out, but it said a lot of really mean things. And, um, and, and also uh, accused me of dressing like a pop star whose name I will not mention um, because my first thought is, why are you dragging her into this, you know? Um, and, uh, and that, you know, it's like, hey, I'm not a good role model for young women and all this stuff. And so I, I got to tell you, like I, when I read that, first of all, okay, I didn't know whether to be like baffled or like somewhat flattered. Like I didn't know what was going on. And then uh, to give you perspective, like the week prior, I had walked downstairs and I was wearing this new dress. It was like this bohemian dress, long, lovely, like big ruffles. And I'm going to put on my boots. And my husband says to me, why are you dressed like a pilgrim? So like that's usually where I would like lie on the spectrum of feedback on my clothing, you know? So I'm like, what in the world is happening? But can I tell you, pride, I went from worshiping Jesus, raise a hallelujah, you know, in the presence of my enemies, and you are my enemy and I will cut you, like that's where I went. And I was like typing up this message back, I was like, oh, interesting, because I think trolling as a Christian sends some mixed messages as well, you know. I didn't hit send. How many of you are so grateful for the Holy Spirit that kind of like checks you sometimes, you know? I was like, no, okay, be a real Christian, be a real Christian, right? And I took a moment to actually pray for that person because I'm like, oh, they got to be pretty lonely. I don't know. Like, I don't know what's going on there, you know? Um, but here's the deal. I think it's easier to do that with strangers than it is the people closest to you, right? The irony is that we say to the people who know us best sometimes when they try to correct us, when they try to lovingly exhort us, when they try to encourage us in areas, when they try to point out things, we're like, you don't know me. No, they do know you. That's why they're saying it, right? Like, but that tends to be our reaction. So what do we do? Pride is something that affects all of us. What do we do? Well, in Galatians, we read earlier that we've now been clothed with Christ. The thing about clothing is we choose what we wear. And at any moment when we recognize that pride is calling the shots, we can call a timeout and clothe ourselves with the humility of Christ. Hold on, I'm wearing the wrong thing right now. Let me clothe myself with Christ for a second. We can choose humility, and we can practice this, this, just this question in our hearts before we want to react. Just a simple question, like, who am I to judge? What a powerful question that is, too, because then we recognize who the judge really is, and it's not us. It's God alone. Pride. Here's another bug. Isolation. The bug of isolation. The decision we make when we're going through a difficult time when we're feeling a lot of pressure in life, or when somebody hurts us, or somebody offends us, to draw away from community instead of to lean into community and receive what we need. We're all prone to this. This would be mine, by the way. I think more than any of the bugs that we talk about, um, you know, pride definitely plays, or all of them have affected me, but I I've seen this as a pattern in my life, and I'm so grateful for some of the close friends in my life who've called me out on that. I said, hey, you're leaning back instead of leaning in. Isolation is something that we justify quite a bit. We do. Uh, we say things like, nobody cares. We say things like, it won't make a difference anyway if I open up about this. They say, it's not worth it. I don't want drama, so I'm not going to have that conversation. Um, we, we say things like, I can figure it out on my own. We, we justify it, don't we? Or we say things even if we're really honest with ourselves, like, I, I don't want to put myself out there and get hurt again or I don't want to be vulnerable and risk what people would think about me. 
Like th these are the kind of ways in which we justify taking a step back and taking a step back. But God's word is really clear that regardless of what our reasoning is to isolate under pressure, that it's actually the worst thing that we could do for ourselves and for the community. Proverbs 18.1 says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. The foolish, the foolishness, the fool, the, what's the word? The most foolish thing, thank you, I can speak. The most foolish thing that we could do is actually isolate. It breaks against all sound wisdom. Now, what I've noticed about isolation is that it's not simply about a physical presence. It's a heart posture. You could be showing up to everything. We could be during the meet and greet, saying hi to everybody. We could be volunteering on a team. We could be serving in a community group, and yet internally, drawing back, drawing back, drawing back. How are things going? Good, they're good, they're good. You wanna hang out? Oh, I'm good, I, I, can't, I can't hang out for coffee afterwards because I don't want you to ask me tough questions, right? Like, we can isolate so quickly. So what do we do with this tendency to want to try to figure things out on our own or to even justify it spiritually by saying, me and Jesus are just going to figure this out for a second? I know I've done that quite often in my life, even use that reasoning. I'm just, Jesus and I, we're going to get it. And what I was actually doing was causing myself to not receive the solution that God was giving me through other people. Here I'm saying, Jesus will help me, and Jesus is like, I am. It's your community. I'm going to use them to help you, but because you're isolating, you're not going to get your solution. You're not going to get your support. You're not going to get your encouragement. You're not going to get the love that you're asking for right now. I have it. It's just going to be felt through community, right? So how do we move past this? Well, it's simple. Simple things are not easy things. The gospel is simple. It's not easy, but it is simple, and this is simple as well. We choose in those moments, even though it feels awkward even though it feels uncomfortable, even though it feels vulnerable, we choose vulnerability and connection. We choose to lean in and not away. We say to the person, hey, let's talk. We, we, we say in community group when people are going, how was your week? Instead of going, it was okay. We say, you know what? It was really hard. Like we open up. We share. If somebody hurts our feelings, then we actually say, hey, you know what? Like, let's have a conversation about this because you're my sister, you're my brother in Christ, and I want to treat you like we are, we're one. It's in that moment that we gain traction over isolation. Here's the last bug, very quickly. Last bug that we'll talk about today is division. Ooh. Division sounds like such an aggressive word, doesn't it? Like, no one wants to be caught, like, accused of division. You're like, division? I'm not, I'm not that person, you know? But here's what I found is that division, though a big, scary word, actually mostly manifests itself through something that is a lot more subtle, gossip. And what's ironic about gossip is that it does nothing to bring unity, but a lot of times we Christianize or spiritualize the experience. So we'll do things like, oh, did you hear about this? I'm telling you so you can pray. Like, we need to be praying for this person. We say that a lot, right? Listen, if we actually prayed every time we said that, we'd be the most interceding generation of the church ever, right? Like, more prayer, less talk, right? Or, or we'll say things like, I just thought you needed to know. And I'm like, I've never met that person. Why would I need to know, right? Why did you think I needed to know? I don't understand. We say these things, and they seem 
like they're things that are, you know, because we love each other, but in fact, they're things that cause a whole lot of divisiveness, a whole lot of hurt. And what they do, and this is the worst part of all, is they minimize trust. They break trust in a community. And trust is probably one of the greatest byproducts of genuine love, trust. And so what do we do? Well, the answer is, once again, quite simple, but it's not always the easiest. What I love is that scripture, and particularly Jesus in the gospels, goes out of his way to teach on this very thing. It's almost like Jesus knew how hard it is for us to actually relate to each other under pressure. And so there's some things he makes really clear. He's like, listen, I I know you don't understand healthy conflict very well. I know you don't like it. I know you run from it. I know that you're prone to talk about people instead of two people. So here is what you can do. In Matthew 18, 15 through 20, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a Christian tax collector. Now, I'll pause here because a lot of times we think that this means I expel you. I will have no relationship with you. How did Jesus treat the the tax collector and the pagan? He loved them. He didn't expect them to agree with him. He just loved them. So you get to a place where you're like, you know what? Maybe boundaries are going to change here, but my love is not. We're not going to have the conversation anymore. We tried, but I'm still going to love you, right? I tell you the truth, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. I also tell you this, if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. Where two or three gather together as followers, I am there among you. Here's what I want us to grasp. Jesus goes into very specific detail of how we handle conflict, and then he equates that to the power of unity in the church. Some of us love quoting that end part, but we're not willing to actually work towards the healthy conflict that is going to cultivate the kind of unity where we're going to see those miracles happen on the earth. And I just wonder for all of us, friends, if perhaps the reason that we're not seeing some of the results we could be seeing is because we haven't leaned into this truth. And yes, it's uncomfortable, but there is great promise attached to it for our lives and for this generation. For the church to be one, we have to learn to not talk about each other, but talk to each other. And to do it for the point of reconciliation and the point of unity and the point of peace. Perhaps one of the greatest ways we can apply this is when somebody starts talking to us, saying, you know, so-and-so, then you can bring them back to Matthew and say, oh, that's crazy. Have you talked to them about it yet? That'll keep all of us in check real quick, right? Well, I was was going, okay, bye, I'll go do that right now, you know? (laughs) These simple things that we can do to protect the unity that Christ died for us to have. And the fruit of it, oh, this is my prayer, is that as we put into practice what it means to be aware of the things that sabotage and to choose instead the character of Christ, that we would actually experience the great fruit that comes with oneness and togetherness. I pray that this would be a year that we spiritually mature like never before. I pray that this would be a year where we see needs met within the community like never before. And I pray that more and more people would come to know about Jesus, not because of any sermon we preach, but because of the way that we love each other. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your word. Yeah, it's challenging at times. And for some of us today, for most of us, probably, let's be real, all of us, at one moment or another, it was a bit challenging. But we thank you that your kindness leads us to repentance. And so, Father, in this moment... 
we choose a posture of humility where we've seen pride hinder the connection that we could be having, we're choosing once again to clothe ourselves with humility. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us see the moments that we're isolating and that we choose to lean in and truly be there for each other. And I pray, God, that we would be mindful of how we protect unity together, that we would get great at healthy conflict resolution. It's messy, but Father, we want to honor you, and we want to have the kind of unity that brings the miracles that you promise, and all for your glory. So have your way, oh God. In Jesus' name, amen and amen and amen.